The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Well, we continue our book study of Joshua. Y'all find a seat. I know it's hard. There's some over here. Um, but we're, we're in chapter 11 and 12. We've been working through the book. And just as a way of review, last week we looked at chapter 10. And we've titled the series, The Battle of Faithfulness. Uh, in this battle of faithfulness, last week we saw an epic battle of the southern portion of the promised land that Israel was, was conquering. But last week's text really focused on, on God's role in the battle. We've learned from the scriptures that there is a, a cooperation, if you will, a divine sovereign cooperation. It's not that God is subject to us, but in this life, God is very involved in our lives. He's in the middle of our battles with us, that we are not alone as his children fighting these battles. Last week's text really focused on God in our battle. And we were challenged to think about that and to realize the incredible privilege of prayer. We saw Joshua was pictured as one in a battle, but praying to God and asking God to fight in, on his behalf, fight in the battle. And we see God's being emphasized last week that God was uh, confusing the enemy. God sent hailstones upon the enemy. Uh, it says that God is the one who pursued them and slew them and slaughtered them. The focus was on God and his active role. And we saw that though it was miracle after miracle after miracle that God did, sent hailstorms and possibly stopped the earth from rotating that day. But the greatest miracle of all was that God listens to a man. That the creator of the universe hears your prayer and he responds and acts according to your request. What an incredible privilege prayer is. Are we inviting God? Are we calling upon God to, to fight with us and for us and in us and through us? And so we saw what an incredible reminder that was. Today, as we come to chapters 11 and 12, we see that this provides a, an overarching summary of all that has happened in Joshua 1 through 12. This is the midpoint of the book, and it, it provides a breaking point where we see in chapter 11, the northern portion of the land is being conquered. This is the greatest battle of all that, that we see. That This is the epic battle that all the, the forces that are described as so numerous, they're as numerous as the sands on the seashore. And the, the, the chapter 11 begins to take this, this epic feel, an epic sense about it. And it starts to create this idea of this, this massive end times cosmic battle that we, we read about in Revelation, where the exact same phrase of the, the enemy will be as numerous as the sands on the seashore. And it's a picture of the day when Christ returns. His second coming will be as a, a massive conquering king, a valiant warrior who rides on a stallion and slews his enemies. He came the first time as a suffering serpent who wouldn't break a bruised reed. He came the first time to give his life on the cross, to die in order to give us spiritual victory. And so he gives us victory spiritually, but in this meantime, in this lifetime until he comes back, we still are waging war. And so the kingdom of God, all this points us to this epic battle, points us to this idea of the kingdom of God is in an already but not yet state. 
That's the strange language that theologians come up with to to explain what we see in the scriptures. That the victory has already been won by Christ on the cross. You have victory over sins when you come to faith in him. It's already there. It's already yours. But you have not yet experienced the fullness of that victory. That's what's pictured in this scene here. This uh, chapter 11 and 12. We see this already victory has been accomplished. By the end of this chapter, Joshua has conquered the land. The conquest is complete. And chapter 12 is a list of every city, every territory, every victory that was won. Even before Joshua, even with Moses. And so there's this sense of it is finished. Yet, we still have chapters 13 through 24, where they then have to walk in and inherit and allocate the blessings of that victory. And what we see is all this points us to Christ, because ultimately Hebrews says, the writer of Hebrews says, there is a rest from war that Joshua was unable to give. There is a rest from war that we needed someone greater than Joshua. We need someone greater than Moses. And that's what the Pentateuch, it does. It creates this expectation of one who is greater than Moses, one who is greater than Joshua, one who conquers the enemy, one who conquers sin and Satan, and one who will finally give us rest. And so we live in this already but not yet state. We're already, those of us who have trusted in Christ, the wrath of God that we see pictured in these epic battles that are gory. It reminds us of the wrath of God that it has been poured out on Christ himself for his people. We already are victorious over sin, but we are not yet fully entered into that final stage that this lifetime is still a battle with temptation. That the serpent's head has been cut off, but the snake still wiggles. The snake still can tangle us up and render us useless and unsideline us with, with temptation and sin. But it doesn't have to be. And so we are learning in this lifetime how to walk in the victory that has already been declared ours in Christ. And one day when Christ returns, it'll finally be done. Jesus will do away with all remaining effects of sin and it will be glorious. And the older I get, the more I am saying, like I used to hear my parents say, come, Jesus, come. I didn't get that when I was little. I was like, no, don't rush it. Now I'm like, bring it, Jesus. Give us rest. And so this final chapter produces this idyllic call to trust in Christ. And it's important because once we trust in Christ, now we are in the proper posture to understand the rest of these verses. Because what I'm going to do is give you several, uh, several actions or several principles of the faithful servant. And what I want to be careful, these are not steps. This is not a ladder of righteousness. Don't do these things thinking, if I do these things, I'll be right with God. Instead, what we need to see is that the child of God who is in a loving relationship with the good, good father that we were just singing about is perfectly accepted because I am loved by God through Jesus Christ. And as the the child of God, we're going to see today what faithfulness looks like. This is the life that at the end of time, when we stand before the father, he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Don't you want... That to be proclaimed over your life. So what does that look like? Let's ask the Lord to help us this morning. Father God, we pray that we begin on the foundation of faith in Jesus Christ who makes us your child. 
accepted, loved unconditionally, completely accepted like the perfect Heavenly Father accepts His children. But then may we see a picture of the ideal servant of God, the, the picture of model, the model of faithfulness. And may we strive to be like we see here today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's look at the setting and set it up, and we'll begin to, to pull out attributes or characteristics of the ideal model person of faith. The scene is set in verses 1 through 3. Uh, the battle is the biggest, baddest battle he's faced in, in his life. It is the, the whole northern portion of the promised land has gathered to fight Joshua, Joshua. And listen to verse 4. It says, They came out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. Remember that. This is a picture of a mighty, massive, modern warfare, the best of all the equipment. They have the horses and chariots, and they are numerous. Verse 5 says, So all the kings, having agreed to meet, they're conspiring against God's people. They came and they camped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Here we see the very first lesson of what the faithful servant must do. It says, You must be sober minded. Sober minded. To be sober-minded means to be clear-headed, to, be, to have right thinking about reality, to not to be fuzzy-headed, but to know very clearly what you are facing. Here we see the, the narrator of the story has spent a lot of ink saying, do you realize how ominous this battle is? Do you realize how massive this enemy is? Do you realize what Joshua was facing? What he's saying to us is, do you realize what you are facing in this battle of faithfulness. Be sober-minded. Reminds me a lot of parenting as, as I think back about how we try to help our kids to be sober-minded. We, we started at a very young age and we tried to always be ahead of what we thought they would be facing at school. And I knew that there were many times that we'd have a conversation that they were going to be like, what? I didn't know that goes on out there. And so we would try to be, hey, when you're at at recess, have you seen this going on yet? No, that's gross. I'm like, well, get ready. You're going to see it. And we did that as they went and we encouraged them, be in communication with us. And as you see these things, we want to talk with you. We're on your side. We want to help you know what you're going to face. We want to help equip you for the battle that when we send you out there, we don't want to send you ill-equipped. We don't want to send you deceived. I know as a kid, you want to go out there and you want to laugh and you want to giggle. You just want to enjoy the playground. But I want you to know what you're going to face when you one day you're going to stumble onto it. You're going to see it. And I want you to not be surprised. I want you to be sober-minded. <coughs> you know, we as Christians oftentimes have the similar, similar style or similar desire as kids. We want this life to just be lighthearted and fun. And I don't want to be a buzzkill. I don't want to get too serious about all this stuff. I don't want to be the guy that brings it down. I want to just go out and have fun. And the scriptures warn us, there is a serious battle raging. And if you aren't sober-minded about the massive 
vast army of the enemy, if, you don't, if you're not sober-minded and thinking clearly about the fact that you are right in the middle of a spiritual battle, then you have already set yourself up for failure. The, the New Testament tells us over and over, just search the word sober-minded. 1 Peter 1.13 tells us to be sober about our sin. Oftentimes, the enemy of Christians can be summarized as, as the world, the flesh, and the devil. That kind of helps package, like, what is my enemy? What are you talking about, my enemy? The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is the sinful systems of, of this world that are built on values contrary to the word of God. The flesh means that within us, even as Christians, we still battle with temptation and sinful desires. There's an internal waging war where we are trying to put to death the sinful desires of what Paul calls the flesh. And, and that is in contrast to the desires of the spirit. So the world, the flesh, and the devil. The devil is real. And he is opposing everything of God. Do we realize, are we sober-minded that all that's going on? Or are we just trying to be happy-go-lucky and be cool Christians? Let's see how close we get to the world and show people Jesus is cool. No, God says there is a battle raging and you need to know it. And you need to be sober-minded about this. Listen to what 1 Peter 1.13 says. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, you yourselves also should be holy in your behavior. Because it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. We need to be sober-minded about sin. Sin is deceitful. Sin is the enemy of our soul and our joy and all that God wants us, wants for us. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober spirit, be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. We need to be sober-minded about the battle that we are in. The model servant is sober-minded. 1 Peter 4, 7, we see how this relates to prayer. He says, the end of all things is near. We should live with this expectancy that the end is near. Christ will return. Be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of Prayer, understanding the battle that you are in, being sober and clear-headed that you are really in a battle should drive you to your knees and call upon God for help. As we just saw in chapter 10, God fought for Joshua. Are you sober-minded about the fact that you are in a massive battle right now? (laughs) Praise God, Jesus has given us victory, but we still have a fight before us until he returns. Not only do we see Joshua sober-minded, but we also see next, he listened to God. The model servant, the man and woman of faith, listens to God. Look at verse 6. 
He says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow at this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. This is almost identical to chapter 10. As Joshua was rushing up to Gibeah to fight that battle, the Lord spoke to him, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear, for I have given them into your hands. The, the picture of the two chapters is even though you don't see hailstorms, even though you don't see miracles, even though you don't see this emphasis on God's activity, he's invisibly working just like he was in chapter 10. God is faithful to fight for his people. But we need to listen. Now, how did Joshua hear from God? How did Joshua, how did God speak to Joshua? We see in the Old Testament three ways that God spoke to Joshua. First of all, we see through the prophets. He said, listen very carefully to my prophets, the man who I send to you and says, thus saith the Lord. And what he says come true. You need to know I have sent him to speak to you and you better do what he says. We also see he spoke through the priest. He said, listen, when you get into the land and you're starting to fight your battles, go and talk to the priest and and have him pray and ask for my wisdom. But we also see he spoke through the word of God. In Joshua 1, 8, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night. You shall be careful to do everything that is written in it, for then you will have success. How does God speak to us? Christ followers. How does God speak to us today? Two key ways that God speaks. The Spirit and the Word. The Spirit and the Word, and those work hand in hand. God speaks to us through the Word of God, just like He spoke to Moses to Joshua through the word of God. In Deuteronomy 20 verse 1, God clearly spoke through black and white letters of the scriptures. Listen to what God said to Joshua before he faced this battle of many horses and many chariots. God spoke to him through the scriptures. Moses wrote the scriptures. It says, when you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots, pretty applicable, And people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt is with you. Then he says, when you are approaching the battle, the priest shall come near and shall speak to the people. He shall say to them, hear, O Israel, you are approaching the battle against your enemies. Do not be faint hearted. Do not be afraid or panic or tremble before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. God speaks to us through the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is literally breathed by God and it's profitable, it's helpful, it's valuable for your teaching, for reproof, correction, training, and righteousness so that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. The word of God is the primary way God speaks to us. We, We want God, God speak to me. We want him to speak in some mysterious way. When I said the spirit and the word, you immediately are thinking, yeah, spirit. Tell me about the spirit. How's the spirit speak? It starts with the word of God. But to understand how the word of God is is real and relevant to your life and to your battles, and it can speak just like Joshua, like, oh, God told me about what to do with horses and chariots. (laughs) To do that, you've got to know how to read the Word of God. You've got to be trained. You've got to know how to read. You've got to know context because 
You and I can look at words and, and say, well, that, this means this or this means that. If you're not adequately trained in the Word of God, then you will feel like, I don't know what it says. For example, this weekend, I had these boys in my house, high school boys. I know why they were put in my house, because Jared knows that I'm cool. <laughs> Amen. And they know I'm cool. I mean, I don't even have to try. It just happens. And so I'm being cool in the kitchen, and I'm sure they're thinking, okay, this is how you're cool. Let me write this down. And so we're in the kitchen having breakfast Saturday morning, and I'm, I'm whipping up eggs and bacon, and, and they're wrapping up breakfast. And, and remember, this is a lesson in context on how to understand word, meanings, the meaning of words. And so I, I asked them, hey, any of you guys old enough to drink coffee? And a couple of them are like, yeah, I'll take some coffee. So I fixed them. I'm like, well, let me find a to-go cup. I don't even think we have styrofoam cups. And so I'm digging in the pantry. Like, oh, yeah, two styrofoam cups. So I find these styrofoam cups, and I'm fixing them a couple of cups of coffee, and I'm like, hey, this is cool. You know, I got flip-flops on, and I'm cooking. And it says, it says, beach, please, and it's got a pineapple on it. And I'm like, awesome. It's the beach. Don't you guys wish you were at the beach? And they're like laughing, and I am like, I am cool. <laughs> I mean, they are cracking up, and I'm like, yeah, I just got it. So I get them some coffee, and I send them on the way. Well, they come back. On their way home, and they're like, uh, I went to IHOP with them because they were begging me. Actually, they said, we're going to IHOP. I said, can I go? And so I went with them. And so they're like, hey, Pastor Tracy, about that styrofoam cup you gave us yesterday. I'm like, yeah. They're like, you know what that means? And I'm like, what? And they're like, beach, please. And I'm like, no. They're like, okay, don't worry about it. <laughs> so apparently that's slang for something else. And now I understand why they're laughing so hard. Because it wasn't really about the sandy beach. But I'm sitting there going, wow, I need to talk to Dana. Who have we served these cups to? I don't know what they've been thinking. But they're probably like, this pastor's hemp. And I'm like, I wasn't trying to be. So words have meaning and you need to know the context. You've got to know the meaning of the Bible. You have to know how to rightly interpret the word of God. You've got to have skills to know that's not what that means. It can't just mean whatever you say it means. Beach means sandy beach. That's all it means. Unless you have a different context. So when you come to hear from the word of God, do you know how to rightly divide the word? Week in and week out. Come to church here. Our commitment is to help you do that. When you hear us teach up here, we're trying to help you understand not just a point to take home, but also where we got that from. How to rightly divide the word. How to take the story as a whole and let it shape the meaning of that word to you. God speaks to his people through the word of God. This is the foundation of hearing from God. But it's the spirit and the word. We see in Galatians 5.16, Paul says, Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh 
sets, this is that sinful flesh he was, I was talking about earlier, for the flesh sets its desires against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. So we see in the, the scriptures, this idea of the leading of the spirit of God. And this is a frustrating thing to teach because as soon as I say led by the spirit of God, I think of 20 different versions of that. Then I think of, okay, that's error. That's error. That's error. And it's hard to put it and explain it. But the best way I can understand it is think about it this way, that God is your father and the spirit of God is God. He lives within you. And like any good father, he wants to guide you and teach you. He wants to help you and direct you. And the word of God are the principles and precepts that create the the path that he has for you within that path. There's great freedom. And the spirit of God is, is very involved and he wants to guide and direct you within that path. And he has a great plan and he gives you joy and he gives you peace or you can grieve the spirit and the spirit of God can, can steal your joy and say, Hey, ho, oh, that's not where I want you. That's getting off the path. But the spirit of God is, he is relational. The spirit is he, it's a person, it's God. He is relational. And just like some children, parents know some children need this kind of guidance, maybe a heavier hand. Other children need a softer hand and, and maybe they need more attention and they want, they crave your involvement. Others are a little more intended, but independent, but God knows You, he knows your personality. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he is intimately involved and he wants to guide you. He wants to direct you, but he does it on the foundation within the parameters of you knowing him as you come to know him through the word of God. If you tell me, hey, your dad said this, I'd be like, my dad didn't say that. How do you know? Because I know my dad. If you know God in his Bible, you start to know his voice. And it sounds different to each one of us because we're different. I know how, I know how God talks to Granger. Granger and I have been friends for many years. We've served side by side. I know how God talks to Granger and Granger know how God's talked to me. I know how God talks to my wife and it's very different because we're very different. But we recognize, we've learned over the years to recognize the voice of God. Do you know how to hear from God with spirit and the word. One last condition qualification. The spirit and the word needs to take place in the context of community. The protective context of community. Many weird, strange things have happened from people out by themselves saying, I'm listening to God as I read my scriptures and they don't have other believers in their life protecting them and saying, whoa, 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 let's, let's, leave, let's revisit this. You see, great, the Spirit of God among his people gives a protective community of, of how do we know what God is saying. Are you in community with other believers studying and searching the scriptures to know God and to hear his voice for you on that path? that he has set forth in his scriptures. That's the model of faithfulness. So we are sober-minded about the real battle that we are in with sin, the world, the devil. We listen to God. Next, we see Joshua depends on God. 
Joshua depends on God. Verse 7, So Joshua and all the people of war with him came upon them suddenly by the waters of Merim and attacked them. The Lord delivered them into the hands of Israel so that they defeated them and pursued them as far as the great Sidon and Mesopotamia. Miam and the valley of Mizpah in the east and struck them so that no survivor was left to them. And listen to this. Joshua did to them as the Lord told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fiber. I mean, when we read that, we're like, that's just like cruelty to animals. What in the world is going on? Now, why would they hamstrung, hamstring the animals, the, the horses, and burn the chariots? I mean, if I'm going into battle, and I just defeated the biggest, baddest army with horses and chariots. What am I going to do? I'm going to take those horses and chariots, and we are going to be the biggest, baddest army. And that's exactly why God said, no. Cut their hamstrings on the horses. Render them powerless as, as animals of beastly strength, as warriors, and and destroy the gold chariots. Get rid of them. Why? So that you don't depend on them. But you depend on me for your victories. Listen to what Roses Moten, Deuteronomy 8.11. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes which I am commanding you today. Why would he say, beware, don't forget them? Otherwise, when you have had success, when you have eaten, are satisfied, you built good houses, and you live in them, when your herds and your flocks have multiplied, your silver and your gold have multiplied, and all that you have multiplies, when you are successful and you've enjoyed my victories, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God. Isn't that the way it is? In, in community group, we were talking a couple weeks ago about Joshua's careless covenant where he didn't seek the Lord. And we said, when are we most likely to enter into careless? When are we most likely to stop asking the Lord for his wisdom? And someone said, when things are going great. And we all said, that's exactly right. Oh, when, things are, when we are in a bad place, oh, God, help me. When he's been giving us victories and success and things are going great, it's like, I got this. You know why I'm having success? Because I got horses. I've got chariots. God says that the biggest battle you face is the battle of pride, the battle of not depending on me. And so the Lord says, Joshua, the model servant always depends on me. Maybe you've been going through a good stage and you've gotten arrogant and you started depending on yourself. That's probably the greatest battle we face. The model servant depends on the Lord. Psalm 27, the psalmist says, Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. May it be said of our church, any quote-unquote success that we have, any praise that we get, it is not about us. It is praise to the glory of God. Be sober-minded, listen to God, Always depend on God. Next, we see he carefully obeyed God. This is inherent in the idea of listening and depending, is carefully obeying God. In verses 10 and following, he talks about them winning the battles and destroying their enemies. And look what it says in verse 12, the second part of verse 12 towards the end. It says, just 
as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. He did all these things. And then in verse 13, 14, as he obeyed, he obeyed this, that, and the other. Verse 15, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. The Lord commanded Moses... Moses was exalted as an ideal leader because he trusted God enough to be a life of obedience. He wrote the commands in the scriptures. Joshua received those commands and he carefully studied the word of God and he obeyed the God so that the repeating refrain, though he was not perfect, the repeating refrain was, he left nothing undone that the Lord commanded. I want you to think about what people say about you. As a Christian, do they say, man, she leaves nothing undone that the Lord commands. And that guy is all about obeying the Lord. Too many times we, we want to be known as something else. We want to be known as, as I said earlier, you can have Jesus and you can still be worldly. No, We want to be known as people who are dedicated. Not that we're going to be perfect, but at least they're going to know we are trying to obey the Lord because we know Him and we love Him because He loves us. The model of faith obeys God. Next we see he, she perseveres. Verse 16 and following, Joshua took the land. He took this land. He took that land. Verse 17, he went from this place to that place. Verse 18, Joshua waged war a long time. Joshua waged war a long time. When we read these texts, a long time, right? (laughs) She's like, wait, he's looking at me. Joshua waged war a long time. When we read these texts, we think that they were like these quick little battles. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're getting little summary snapshots of these battles. Here, the narrator is very careful to say this. These things went on for a long time. Now, look at verse 20. Why was this a long battle? For it was the Lord. Reason for it. Reason it was the Lord who hardened their hearts. Why, why, why didn't all these enemies enter into peace treaties like the Gibeonites? Why didn't they all say, hey, ooh, you're taking down all of them. We're not going to, let's just, let's just call it a truce. Because the Lord hardened their hearts. That's hard to take, isn't it? Let's think through that a minute. Is the Lord hardening some sweet, innocent people who wanted to worship God? God, I want to worship you. Nope. I'm going to harden your heart. No, we know these people. They've hardened their hearts. They've resisted. They heard like Rahab didn't do what Rahab did. They heard like each person along the way. And they've heard how the Lord has gotten victory one after another. And here we are after long battles. At the end of the story, they're still hardening their hearts. The Lord, Romans says, gave them over to their sin. We see this pictured in in Pharaoh, in Egypt. 
when God delivered Israel out of Egypt, out of slavage, ha, ha, slavage, I don't know what that is, but God did it. He, he delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. And, and how did he do it? One plague? No. Two plagues? No. Three, four, plague after plague after plague. Why? Because the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Interesting interchange when you read the story. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then the Lord hardened his heart. And then Pharaoh hardened his heart. And the Lord hardened his heart. That's how the narrative unveils that story. What's the point? God said, the reason I'm doing this is because I'm going to display my power, my glory, my majesty to the Egyptians and to the surrounding nations. God took their hardness of heart and used it to save others. So as we think about our battles and we are called to perseverance, we need to understand this. God is more concerned about his plans and his purposes to bring his glory to the nations, to the end of the earth, than he is about your comfort. This is not the season for comfort. This is the season of battle. When he comes again, that's when he'll take care of our comfort. So right now, do you understand that God is in some mysterious way? God is working in those struggles that you are saying, God, just in the battle. God has a good plan for it. God has a good purpose for it. Can you see the invisible God through eyes of faith having a good plan through the middle of your battles? The model servant perseveres, trusting God is working even in the midst of the battle. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. You're in a race, and it's not a sprint. It's a long-distance marathon. And the ones who persevere to the end will receive the crown of life. Finally, the model servant, the one who is sober-minded, listens to God, depends on God and obeys God and perseveres to the end, enjoys success. In 1121, it says Joshua came to the time where he cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron and Debir, from Anab, from the hill country of Judah, from the hill country of Israel, Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. There was no Anakim left. This is not a Star Wars episode. Who are the Anakim? The Anakim are these Hulk-like monster figures that lived in the land that despised A generation ago, their grandfathers had gone into the land, spying out the land. Can we take the land? They came back and 10 out of 12 said, no way. You should see the Anakim. We look like grasshoppers next to them. But Joshua and Caleb, the two spies said, yes, we can. If we trust the Lord, if we're sober minded, if we depend on him, listen to him, obey him, we persevere, we will get victory over the Anakim. And that's exactly what happened. You walk with the Lord like this and you will see victories in your life that you thought were impossible. You can overcome that sin. 
But notice the last phrase. Verse 23, so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Thus the land had rest from war. Oh, glorious Sabbath rest. As I said earlier, the writer of Hebrews makes it clear that Joshua didn't give them the ultimate rest. As the story unfolds, we see that the Israelites end up forgetting the Lord, worshiping idols, and they are kicked out of the land. That's exactly what we saw in the garden narrative. In Genesis, the picture is God resting them in the garden, the idyllic place where he is their king, and they are trusting loyal servants of the king, and they enjoy rest from enemies, and all they are to do is enjoy God's glorious creation, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with his glory. But they sinned, and they were kicked out of the garden. Here, Israel enters the land. God gives them rest from their enemies, but they forget God. They sin, and they are exiled out of the land. There is coming a day when we will finally get this right, because Jesus will come back and he will destroy all his enemies. It'll be a day of judgment for everyone who opposes him, but it'll be a glorious day of salvation and the final establishment that Jesus gives on this new heavens and a new earth where Jesus is reigning and ruling over his land and the people of God, all the children of God throughout the ages who have worshiped King Jesus will rest In his land, there will be no sadness, no sickness, no sin, no death. All that God has conquered through Jesus will finally be experienced. We will enjoy his victorious rest. We will finally allocate the full inheritance that Jesus has won for us. And it will be glorious. That day's coming. Don't give up in the battle of faithfulness. Oh, dear Jesus, thank you so much for being the greater Moses, the greater Joshua who conquered the world, the sin, the devil, who has given us certain victory, but we have not yet enjoyed the fullness of that victory. In the meantime, we battle every day against the world, the flesh, the devil. But we battle as your beloved children filled with your spirit, given the word of God. May we battle faithfully. May we be sober-minded. May we listen carefully to you. May we depend upon you. And may we carefully obey you. May we persevere to the end. Lord, make us faithful servants. And may it be said, All glory goes to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norsferrychurch.org.